Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Really, this is the beginning of a of a new thought, of a new section, uh, not that it hasn't been mentioned before. It's talking now, or we'll be getting into Jesus as the high priest. And it picks up, let me open, in Hebrews, where Hebrews chapter 2 had briefly mentioned about Jesus being our high priest. And in verses 17, uh, 217 through 31, it says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Then it talks about how he's much better, Jesus is, than Moses. Then gets into the warning passages. But it now will we'll pick up again and take us really all the way through chapter 7, where it just emphasizes Jesus as the high priest, but not after the Levitical order, but after Melchizedek. And so it introduces it here again, and the challenge is based, because look at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. It's, it's predicated on what has been challenged uh, to the people, the professing believers, that, hey, you need to come in to salvation. Uh, you, you need to mix faith with your head knowledge and believe in your heart. Uh, so when we are introduced here to Jesus as the high priest, He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He made reconciliation to God for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, all are now encouraged to stay with their profession. Now, this would be all people in, in a general sense. Uh, but to those who are only professors, obviously the encouragement there is you need to come to faith, which is what we looked at uh, last week and even the week before uh, as we looked at this. So in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, 
let us hold fast our profession. So he's encouraging them to hold fast their verbal understanding, their profession about accepting Jesus, that he's the Messiah. Now, this is for both groups, and we'll see that as we get to uh, verse 16 there. But there are a number of words or terms or um, titles, perhaps, that we could say that characterize Jesus uh, in verse 14. Number one, it needs to be recognized or seen that we have a great high priest. Earlier, we, I read those verses. Earlier, the writer of Hebrews told us that the Son is the sacrifice for our sins. And it really, it doesn't, it doesn't mention uh, Jesus being the high priest until chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. Function of Jesus or the Son earlier in chapter 1 as the priest, the high priest, is clearly there. If you look back in chapter 1, and in chapter 1, <clears throat> it's only mentioning the Son, but in this very Jewish book, because he's addressing Jewish people, there are three groups, as it were, that he's addressing, or three concepts or three thoughts, which are tied around the three offices in ancient Israel. In verse 1, the prophets. And one of the offices in the Old Testament was that of prophet. God's spokesman to the people. Then another office was that of king, the ruler. We have that in verse 2, whom he had appointed, the middle of verse 2, heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So he's king. Then in verse 3, we get into the priesthood, because the other anointed office is the priesthood, who being the brightness of of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He himself alone purged our sins, speaking of uh, what would ultimately, we will see, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the, uh, the great high priest that he is. He is the fulfillment of the office of priest. And that's why he's the anointed one. Now, in chapter 2, it's mentioned that he would be the high priest. Verse 14 of chapter 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest. And again, in chapters 5 and 7 especially, this will be expounded on uh, in great detail as we get there. But a great high priest. And there's so many ways we can we can think of this um, as we go on into the, the the difference between the Levitical priesthood and the uh, Melchizedek. What would happen to the high priest in biblical Israel? Started out with Aaron, the first high priest, but what would happen after X number of years to Aaron? Die. So there'd have to be another high priest. He would die. Another high priest. So they're constantly replacing. Uh, the high priests. Uh, ultimately, it would become, in, in the nation of Israel, a very uh, corrupted institution where it was sold to the highest bidder, uh, and so it was a very corrupt office it ended up being. Uh, 
but they would die. Why is Jesus so much better? Why is he a great high priest? Because he lives forever. You know, once he rose from the grave, he, he, he lives forever. And, and, and the importance that we're getting in here, we, we, there's a lot in the Bible that teaches about Jesus' first coming. And when he would come and die for the sins of the world. And we're all familiar with, with there's, so, there's so much material on that. Uh, the Gospels talk about his first coming, primarily uh, coming and dying for the sins of the world. There's a lot of material in the Bible on the second coming. You find it all the way through. You find it in the, uh, the prophets. You find it in the writings of Moses. You find it in Revelation. You find it in Matthew. 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. You find it in 2 Thessalonians. You find it, uh, the second coming, all the way through the scriptures. So we oftentimes think of those two bookends, if you will, uh, of Jesus and his ministry. But between his first and second coming, we have presently, what, some roughly 2,000 years. What's he doing now? What's his ministry now? He's the advocate, but he's our high priest. That's what it's talking about. See, a priest represented the people before God. The prophet would have, in a sense, his back towards God and speak to the people and say, thus saith the Lord. But the, but the priest would have his back to the people and face God and represent the people before a holy God. That's what Jesus is doing today. He's in heaven, he's our high priest, and he's our advocate, he's our representative, he's our great high priest, because it's a ministry that continues on, and it's unchangeable, we'll find out. It doesn't go to anyone else. So, he's, uh, then it says, uh, <clears throat> we have a great high, high priest that is passed into the heavens. Now, there's a pattern here. And the pattern is after the tabernacle slash temple and the high priest. And that being that the high priest once a year would pass through three areas, doesn't matter if it's the tabernacle or the temple, into the presence of God. But he couldn't stay in the presence of God and represent us there. It was a one time a year, Day of Atonement, that he could do that. So what, when he would do that, he would, he would go into the uh, courtyard, right, the high priest? And there would be offerings made on the courtyard. But from the courtyard, what area then would the high priest go into? The holy place. But from the holy place, what area would he then go into once a year? The holy of holies. Well, you have the same type of... Um, the pattern that you find with Jesus. But he passed into the heavens. And it's plural. So, first through the outer veil into the courtyard. And think of, uh, again, the, uh, the tabernacle. Probably easier to pick, picture. There's an outer veil around the courtyard. You go through that veil... You go through another veil into the holy place and then through another veil ultimately into the holy of holies. So first through the outer veil into the courtyard, second through the veil that allowed entry into the holy place, 
Third, the high priest would go through the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies and enter into the holy of holies. And the holy of holies was where God dwelt, where the Shekinah glory was, where his presence was. And again, only once a year, one man, the high priest, could go into the presence of God. Now, when we are told that we have a great high priest, he's passed into the heavens. Um, Jesus went through three areas, as it were, ultimately into the presence of God. So heavens is plural, and there are, the Bible speaks of three heavens. We would call it our atmosphere, the first heaven. The stars, or the universe, if you want to call that, above our atmosphere. The second heaven. And God's dwelling place would be the third heaven. So when Jesus ascended, he, he went through our atmosphere, he went through the stars, he went through the universe, and he ascended up into the third heaven. He went through the heavens. Now, the first heaven. Uh, there are a number of verses. I've got a couple of them here. Psalm 104, verse 12. Uh, and even before I look at that, look at, the, um, look at the verse before that, Hebrews 9, 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly them, things themselves with better sacrifice than these. Therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in heaven. So the, the tabernacle and then the temple was patterned after the temple in heaven and what would take place. And we can see it with those three areas that the high priest would go into and ultimately those three areas, if you want to call it that, that Jesus would go through. Our atmosphere, the stars of the universe, and then ultimately into the presence of God in the third heaven. It pictures or patterns or mimics the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. So the first heaven, look at Psalm 104 verse 12. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. The fowls, the birds of the heaven. So if, if a bird would go beyond our atmosphere, he wouldn't be living very long, would he? There's no, atmosphere, there's no oxygen up there, that type of thing. So the fowls of the heaven, that obviously speaks of our sky, our atmosphere, where birds are located. In Genesis chapter 7, in verses 11 and 12, we are told this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the, seventh, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day, were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, broken up. And the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. When the windows of heaven were opened, what poured down? Water, rain, the windows of heaven. That's obviously our atmosphere that's speaking about. You know, it's rained the last few days. We haven't had a lot in this area, but uh, when rain comes, you see a rain cloud. It's not that far away. I don't mean in, in, in horizontal distance. I mean in vertical distance. It may be a, a couple of thousand or more feet up in the sky. But the rain is found in our atmosphere. That's the first heaven. But then there's a second heaven. 
Deuteronomy 17.3. And hath gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded. So the second heaven, the sun, the moon, and all the hosts of that second heaven, all the stars, all the celestial bodies, would take up the second heaven, which we would refer to uh, generally as our universe. Isaiah 13, verse 10 says this, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth. The moon shall not cause her light to shine. Again, about the second heaven. And in the second heaven, we have stars. We have constellations that have their own uh, celestial bodies that have stars. We have the sun, the moon. That is the second he uh, heaven, where the sun, the moon, the stars, the universe is. Now, I guess technically we are part of the universe as well. But everything above our atmosphere you don't find stars in our atmosphere. If you find a star, it's a falling star. It's a meteor or whatever, a little chunk that's fallen off. But you don't find stars, sun, moon in our atmosphere. So the second heaven is what we might call the universe, where, where the stars are, the sun is, the moon is, and that type of thing. But then there's the third heaven. 2 Corinthians 12, 2. I knew a man in Christ, Paul's writing this, above 14 years ago, whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell, God knows. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. Now Paul is speaking of himself here. And what are you saying is, I was brought up to the third heaven. I was brought to the dwelling place of God. Whether I was actually bodily taken up there and sought, or whether it was just in spirit, it really matters not, because Paul was taken there. And he was taken up into the third heaven where God dwells. One day we're going there. Um, in Revelation eleven nineteen, it says this, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So the temple of God was opened in heaven. The pattern of the temple on earth and the tabernacle previous to that patterned after what was in heaven. So Paul went into what we would call, generally speaking, heaven. Literally the third heaven, or ultimately it will be the eternal kingdom. Uh, to me, heaven is, is just too much of a generic uh, term. Uh, I like the eternal kingdom, God's dwelling place, that type of thing. Paul went there, uh, and he came back. He is probably the only person outside of Jesus, that ever had that privilege. You know, a lot of people like to write books, and a lot of people buy their books, unfortunately. Uh, they've gone to heaven and come back. I can guarantee you they have never gone to heaven, and they have not come back from heaven. Uh, it's, it's a marketing ploy. One day, 
You know, you know think of that. Think how big of our, our universe is. Uh, it's, it's enormous. And yet beyond the universe is God's heaven. And one day we are going to be caught up into the air and be with the Lord and, and uh, in, the, in the twinkle of an eye will be changed. And, and, and I think it's about that type of time that will actually be uh, transported from here, earth, to the third heaven. I'm looking forward to that day. Yes? Um, he, he had a vision. I don't know if he was caught up. He saw a vision of the New Jerusalem. But I, uh, there's a difference, I think, between getting a vision of something and then actually being transported there. And I think that's the difference when you look at, at, the, at the Corinthian verse. Um, I know a man in Christ above 14. He goes, such a one caught up to the third heaven. So it wasn't he just, it was not that he was only given a vision of the New Jerusalem. I mean, when you look at, it, turn to Revelation chapter um, uh, 21. John is writing, and he says in verse 1, 21, 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So he, he sees it. Um, as we go down in this, um, <clears throat> verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He tells us about that. Um, now, it doesn't say he was transported there. He sees a vision. And so this is after the millennial kingdom, because the millennial kingdom is in Revelation 20. The great white throne judgment is at the end of Revelation 20. This is the new heavens and earth. So obviously it's not here now, because it's still way in the future. It's at least a thousand seven years in the future. So he was get, getting a vision of it. Kind of like Ezekiel. When Ezekiel saw the dry bones, uh, which was a, a vision of Israel coming back as a nation again, it was a vision. He, he wasn't actually there. The difference with Paul, he was taken to heaven. I can understand why he would not want to come back. Um, so, uh, And that would be the same thing. Um, he, he saw Jesus lifted up, but he wasn't transported to heaven. Um, the only one that I can think of in Scripture, well, that was transported to heaven and came back was Paul. Elijah. Elisha. They didn't come back. Um, you know, they were, they were taken up, but they didn't come back. Now, Elijah will come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord. We know that but he hadn't come back yet. So Paul is the only one that we know of for certain that, that was taken to God's dwelling place, the third heaven, and came back uh, and saw it. But, but the, the picture of the tabernacle and the temple and, and going ultimately into God's presence is what Jesus did as our great high priest. Another question? Yeah, but that's not really coming back. Um, remember, Paul came back. He walked among the people. 
you know, he preached to them. That, that's coming back. You know, and, and those three guys, you know, getting a vision, you know, Jesus and, and Elias, that's not coming back. You know, when I say coming back, I mean coming back to the earth like you were before, walking among the people. That happened to Paul. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, chapter 12 is talking about. So, so three heavens. Um, one day we'll be there. Now, turn your page over. The other phrase, Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest. And again, what he's doing here, he has already spent a, a bunch of time warning the professing believers to come to true faith. Don't just give lip service. Just don't believe it in your head. You have to have a belief in your heart. And so in doing that then, in chapter 4, seeing then, he gives these, seeing then that we have a great high priest, he's passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Three thoughts. And he doesn't just say Jesus. Jesus the Son of God. <clears throat> now there's, there's a lot of verses that we can look at speaking of Jesus as the Son of God. And it's a term that definitely means deity. Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. We are children of God. We are uh, sons and daughters of God. But as it's used with Jesus, this term, it is speaking of his deity. Look in, in Psalm 2, and I have verses 2, 7, and 12 down here. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying. Now, Christ, or Messiah, Mashiach, literally means what? Anointed, or the anointed one. So what we have in Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, not only against the Lord himself, God himself, but against his anointed. His anointed is the Messiah, and they rail against the, uh, the anointed, uh, Jesus himself. <clears throat> and then it says in verse 7, I will declare the, the decree, the Lord has said unto me, the me is the anointed one, the anointed, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, the son of God. Down in verse 12, this is the command. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Kiss is sometimes um, translated do homage to or worship. When you, when, but when you think of kiss, you think of something that's intimate personal. And, and, and what, what God wants us to have is an intimate, personal relationship with the Son of God. Yes, we are to do homage to him. Yes, we are to worship him. But we are to worship the Son, do homage to the Son, kiss the Son, have a personal relationship with the Son, lest he be angry. 
if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you have no hope. God says that ultimately judgment has been turned over to the Son, and he will be meeting out judgment. Oh, look at, um, I didn't put it down here. Look at the Gospel of John. I think it's chapter, it's either chapter 5 or 7. Look at chapter 5. Look at verse 22. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Ultimately, we are going to be judged by the Son, by Jesus. That all men should honor the Son, verse 23, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which has sent him. And then as we go down, look at verse 27. We'll skip over a few verses. And have given him authority to execute judgment, him being the Son, Jesus, God the Father hath given him the authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. He's the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Man. Ultimately, Jesus will be executing the judgment, not, not the Father. When you think of the tribulation period and the unfolding or the opening of the seals, and then the trumpets, and then the bold judgments. Who opens those judgments? Who unleashes those judgments? The Lamb, Jesus. He executes judgment. And the sixth, seventh seal opens the trumpet, and the, and the final trumpet judgment opens the bold judgment. They are all opened, executed, initiated by Jesus. And so in Psalm 2, in verse 12, we are told we have to kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Doesn't take a lot. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you don't accept him as your personal Savior, as your Lord, ultimately he is going to be angry, and you are going to perish. His wrath just needs a little bit of kindling. And you are going to be judged by him. You have to kiss the son. You have to have a relationship with the son. No man comes unto the father but by me, the son, Jesus said. How about John 14, 6? What's John 14, 6 say? You know, no man comes on, you know, I am the, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man what? But through him, through Jesus, through the Son. God is giving him the exercise of judgment. That's what it's saying in verse 12 of Psalm 2. You've got to worship the Son. You've got to kiss the Son. You've got to have a relationship with the Son. Now, if there's any question about the Son being very God himself, at the very end of chapter uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. And the Lord is the Son. So you're blessed if you put your trust in him. 
Now, I'm sorry, I'm going down to, to verse uh, chapter uh, Jeremiah 17. Let me read that again. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him, in Jesus, son. So if you put your trust in Jesus, you're blessed. If you don't put your trust in Jesus, if you don't have a personal relationship, you're what? You're going to get his wrath. You're going to get his judgment. Ultimately, you're going to be cursed. Now, with that understanding, look at Jeremiah 17, verse 5 initially, and then verse 7. It's together here. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and makes flesh his arm, and whose heart departs from the Lord. If you put your trust in a man, I don't care who that man is. If you put your trust in a man, you're cursed. If Jesus is just a man, see the Jewish view of the Messiah is that he's just a man, an exalted a man, a, a powerful man, the messianic king, but just a man. And I've mentioned, um, you know, recently about the man in Israel who, uh, um, who left the faith and denies that Jesus is God and denies the Trinity, the triunity of God. And uh, he will say that Jesus is Messiah. He will say that Jesus is the Son of God. He will say all the same type of things that we say, but he puts a whole different understanding, definition on those terms. He's just a man. Well, if you put your trust in Jesus as just a man, you're cursed. Look at verse 7. Jeremiah 17, verse 7. It's the next phrase here. Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. We're cursed if we put our trust in man. We're blessed if we put our trust in God. And literally, that's Jehovah. Psalm 2.12 says that we are blessed if we put our trust in him, in the Son, by having a personal relationship. Kiss the Son. So if, if we're blessed by putting our trust in the Son and we are blessed by putting our trust in Jehovah, the Son then has to be whom? Jehovah. Has to be Jehovah. Has to be God. Yes? Well, Jehovah, Yahweh, yes. But the Bible more than once identifies Jesus as Jehovah. Yeah. Well, it does, yeah, yeah, and especially when you think of JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, who say he's not Jehovah, and others, but certainly it makes it stronger uh, when we're putting our trust in Yahweh or Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. Whenever I have the time to talk to Jehovah Witnesses, that's how I will approach it with them and show them that Jesus is Jehovah. Well, it doesn't mean we don't, well, we honor the Father. We, we should honor the Holy Spirit, too. They're all, you know, the Godhead, so. Well, they are equal, yes, yeah. Yeah, they're co-equal, co-eternal. That's the, the persons in the, in the Trinity or in the triunity in the Godhead. We understand they are, they are persons, one God, and they are co-equal, co-eternal, yes, and honoring both, yes, so. We also see in verse uh, 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. 
Now, when you have a child born, what is that speaking of? Humanity. He's a man. When he's a son given, that's speaking of what? Deity. Jesus is the God-man. Born into this world, but he's the Son of God, and God gave his only begotten Son. So when it says Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest, he, he didn't just say Jesus is our high priest. He wants to make sure that these readers, and they should know from Hebrews chapter 1, where over and over and over again, why is, why is the Son better than the angels? He's God. And he gives verse after verse after verse from the earlier scripture, from the Old Testament. But to make sure that they understand, not just that he's our great high priest, but he's Jesus, the Son of God, who is our high priest. He's very God himself. And then because of these things, and he lists these three things here um, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, in verse 14, we have a great high priest, he's passed into the heavens, and he is the Son of God. That alone should cement it for everybody. Because of that, we need to hold fast our profession. Why hold fast? It's true. Now, hold fast. Let me. This comes from um, uh, preceptaustin.org, Austin, Texas, uh, about the, word, the meaning of hold fast. It says this. Let us hold fast. Kateo. Meaning or means to lay hold of and cling tightly to that which has been taken hold of. Kateo means to cling to tenaciously with the idea of seizing, retaining, using strength as in Hebrew 6 verse 18. I'll read that note. The writer is exhorting his readers, especially those wavering and being tempted to go back into Judaism, <coughs> excuse me, and not forward, to genuine saving faith in Messiah. In other words, go on to saving faith to those who are not truly saved. Grab a hold of it. Tenaciously grab a hold of it. Cling to it. Don't let go. Hold fast to that. As a principle of faith to keep on holding as intense, let us keep on holding fast their confession regarding the Messiah. So he's encouraging those who have not come to true saving faith. You need to hold fast. In other words, you need to grab a hold of this truth that Jesus is our great high priest. He's passed into the heavens, meaning he's paid the penalty for your sins. He's very God himself, the Son of God. And you need to grab a hold of these truths. You need to grab a hold of him, Jesus tenaciously cling to him, grab a hold with all your strength, accept him. Why? Because of all that he is. Now, Hebrews 6.18, and uh, I'm going to love this portion of Scripture. I, I love this portion of Scripture when we get to it. But 6.18 says this, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, 
we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold. That's the same word that is being challenged back here in Hebrews 4. To lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, the context there is that we are secure in Christ. And there, there's, there's, there's something we need to grab a hold of. That's Jesus. Now, the note that they have here, um, tying in with Hebrews 4, laying hold, kreteo from kratos, means to seize, to cling to that which has been taken hold of. The idea is to hold in one's hand, holding fast so as not to discard or let go. In the context of the present verse, kreteo could mean to hold on to something one already has, or to reach out and grasp something one does not yet have. Which one is favored depends on whether one interprets hope as the act of hoping or the object hoped for. In other words, what he's saying is it fits both groups of people. If you're not saved, you need to reach out and grab a hold of Jesus. He's the only one that can give you forgiveness. If you are saved, and maybe you get some doubts. Don't doubt. Grab a hold of the truth that you know and cling to him because there's no other high priest. There's no other one who's passed into the heavens. There's no other one who is the son of God and what he's done for us. So grab a hold of this truth and be tenacious and don't let it go. Now, in John 6, 66 through 69, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. See, this parallels what we've been looking at. There are some who went and left Jesus. Why? Because they weren't truly saved. And so Jesus then says to Peter and the other disciples, he said, are you going to leave? Says to the 12, are you going to go away also? Don't you love Peter? Who are we going to go to? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the son of God. See, that, that's what um, Hebrews 4.14 is driving at. Who are you going to go to? There's nobody else. You're foolish to depart from the basic fundamentals of the faith that Jesus is our high priest. He's gone into heaven. He's the very son of God, meaning Jehovah, meaning God himself. Uh, if you depart from that, you have no hope. Where else are you going to go? Nowhere. Look at verse 15. Then says this. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In other words, we have a high priest that is not removed from us, that doesn't understand what we're going through. He was touched with the feeling of, uh, of in our infirmities. The with Jesus as our high, high priest. He was tempted like we have been tempted. 
in those three areas. Remember the three areas we looked at in the pride of life and the lust of the flesh and, 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 uh, and, and the eyes and such. But he never succumbed. He never gave in. But he knows exactly what we are going through. And he can relate to us in every single way as our high priest. He understands all we go through because he became a man. He was tempted. He understands what we face, understanding what we go through. He is ready and a faithful source of help. Now, there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a story told from many years ago. Frederick Booth Tucker, the, the founder of Salvation Army. In 1903, after delivering a sermon on the sympathy of Jesus at Chicago's Salvation Army Citadel, Frederick Booth Tucker was approached by a man who was rather unimpressed. He said this, if your wife had just died like mine has, he declared, and your babies were crying for their mother who would never come back, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. You wouldn't tell us that Jesus understands. You wouldn't be telling us that Jesus sympathizes. You wouldn't be telling us that he cares and understands what you're going through. If you had just lost your wife, and my baby's their mother, you would never say what you just said. Incredibly. A few days later, Tucker's own wife was killed in a train wreck. Just a couple of days after this. Her body was brought to Chicago, carried to the exact same citadel for the funeral. After the service, the bereaved preacher, gazed into his wife's silent face before turning to the assembled guests. He said this, the other day a man told me, I wouldn't speak of the sympathy of Jesus if my wife had just died. If that man is here, I want to tell him that Christ is sufficient. My heart is broken, he continued. But it has a song put there by Jesus. I want that man to know that Jesus Christ speaks comfort to me today. The man was there. He came forward. And Booth Tucker led him to the Lord. Fascinating story. You know, until we go through it, we don't know the comfort that he's going to provide. But he has promised to provide that comfort to his children. He provided the comfort there. And whatever trial we go through, the loss of a wife, the loss of a husband, the loss of a child, whatever the case might be, the comfort of Jesus is very, very real. His ministry as high priest. He will minister to us. He knows what we go through, and he can meet every need. The promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it.
You know, there's nothing that we will go through that somebody else hasn't gone through. Jesus is aware of all of it. And will, with that temptation, give us a way to handle it, to bear it, to get through it. We just have to rely on him. He is our faithful high priest, our great high priest who will minister to us. Then on the last page, verse 16, there's, there's probably no more encouraging verse. There's a lot of encouraging verses in the Bible, certainly. Uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Is that encouraging? Yeah. Uh, you know, one day Jesus is returning for us, that blessed hope. Is that encouraging? Certainly. But I'm not, uh, I'm not certain there's any more important or encouraging verse than what we have here in verse 16. Let us therefore. Now, just stop there for a second. He's speaking to the whole group. Who is in focus in Hebrews again? Who is being addressed? Jewish people, but two groups, right? Professors and possessors. He is speaking to both groups. Let us, therefore, because of who Jesus is, he's our great high priest, he's passed into the heavens, he's the Son of God, very God himself. Let us, therefore, Come boldly onto the throne of grace. How are we to approach the Lord, God? Boldly. We don't have to do it timidly. You know, the contrast here is with the, uh, the high priest in the Old Testament. Uh, Jewish writings said he would be preparing for a week for that one day that he would ultimately go into the presence of God. He wouldn't spend a long time in the presence of God. He would do the utmost preparation and caution to make sure that he went into the presence of God properly. Otherwise, he could be struck dead. So it, it, was, it was humbly, it was timidly, if you will. It was not like we are told here. Come boldly. Now, why can we come boldly to God? We don't have to be timid. We don't have to hold back. Let us, therefore, come boldly. Therefore, why? Because of what Jesus has done. We are told, commanded, to come boldly onto the throne of grace. The throne of grace. So we'll, we'll consider grace in a, section, in a second. That we may obtain mercy... And find grace to help in time of need. Come boldly. I, I, you know, just think of that. Um, into the throne of grace. The, high test, the Old Testament high priest was fearful, timid, uh, not certain he wouldn't be struck dead because of his sin, that type of thing. Not so. Not so for us. Come boldly onto the throne of grace. Now, professors and possessors, both are challenged in this verse to come boldly onto the throne of grace. Now, let me give you a definition of grace, and I found what I consider a very excellent um, definition of grace by uh, a pastor who I gather is with the Lord now, uh, David Reagan of Antioch 
Baptist Church. Here's how he defined grace, and I, and I think it does a, does a very good job. I looked at a number of different definitions from Baker's Theological Dictionary and others. Uh, I like his definition. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Now, everybody would agree with that. We don't merit it. It's God's unmerited favor. That is, grace is God doing good for us that we do not deserve. In the Bible, grace and mercy are like two heads of the same coin. Mercy is God withholding judgment or evil that I deserve. Grace is God giving me blessing or good that I do not deserve. So mercy is God holding the judgment that you do deserve, and grace is God giving you blessing or good that you do not deserve. Then it goes on. Because of God's mercy, I do not receive the judgment of God against my sins. Because of God's grace, I receive eternal life and a promise of heaven, though I do not deserve them. Both mercy and grace come to me through the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace can also be defined as God's sufficiency or God's fullness in the life of the believer. God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. That is, the grace of God in Paul enabled him and empowered him in his weakness. Another verse states, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. 2 Corinthians 9.8 God's grace working in us supplies the sufficiency whereby we may abound to every good work. And I love the way he defines grace and mercy for that matter. Mercy, again, is all the evil and the judgment that uh, we deserve, we don't get because God shows mercy. Grace is God giving us goodness, and we don't deserve it at all. And in salvation, for by grace are you saved through faith. God gives you his, that, that goodness and that grace. He gives it to you. you we don't deserve it. But there is a, there is a, a facet of, of, of our life as a believer that we need grace. Not to be saved. We are saved. We are children of God. But we need God's grace to continue our life with him, our walk with him. And so... What this pastor says, it's God's sufficiency or God's fullness in the life of a believer. Now, he has two groups in view here. Number one, he has professors. Notice what he says. Let us therefore come boldly. Everybody, you can come boldly onto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Who needs mercy? Unsaved people. In Isaiah chapter 55, and uh, do I have it down here? Yes, 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to her God, for he will abundantly pardon. Unsaved, the wicked, sinners need to turn from their way, turn to the Lord. And when you turn to the Lord and trust in the Lord, what God will do, he will have mercy on that person, and he will abundantly pardon that person. Who needs to be pardoned? Lawbreakers, sinners. And so when he says here, let us therefore come boldly onto the, great, onto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. All you professors, come boldly. You need mercy. You need to be saved. You need to become possessors of the Lord. Romans 11 and verses 33, 30 through 32 says this. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon them all. God has mercy upon all. Everyone in unbelief. They don't get what they deserve. And as long as they're living, by and large, they have that opportunity, by grace, to receive the forgiveness that they don't deserve whatsoever. Now, if they don't come, what's going to end up happening? No mercy. Judgment. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the ones he's exhorting to come and, and, and obtain mercy are the unbelievers, professors. But he's also talking to believers, those who possess the Lord. Because notice what it says at the end of verse 16. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, once you're saved, are there times that we need grace? Regularly. After we are saved, we have a reservoir of grace to help us. 2 Peter 1, 1 and 2 says this. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Who is he speaking to there? Yeah, believers. We have obtained like precious faith. Then what does he tell believers? Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. You're already believers. Peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As believers, we can have God's grace for living and the peace of God multiplied. Not just added, multiplied. Now, the word here for knowledge in the Greek is epinosis, which means a complete personal knowledge as opposed to gnosis, which means a general knowledge of facts. It's appointed, it's, it's a personal, complete knowledge versus just a general knowledge of facts. In other words, what was the possessor's knowledge? Gnosis. They had a head knowledge. But the possessors had 
in a sense, epinosis, a personal knowledge of that. Strong's definition of it is this way, a precise and correct knowledge used in the New Testament of the knowledge of things ethical and divine. And Kenneth Wiest in his word studies defines epinosis this way, and I love the way he puts it. This knowledge of the Lord Jesus, possessed by the believer, therefore, is not a mere intellectual knowledge of the facts concerning him acquired by a study of the Gospels, for instance, but a heart experience of what and who he is gained by such a study plus a personal association with him by means of the word and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is a person with person knowledge through intimate fellowship. How is grace and peace multiplied unto us according to 2 Peter verses 1 and 2? Through the knowledge of God and our Jesus our Lord. It's not just knowing the facts. It's a personal, experiential, daily walk with the Lord based on truth and seeing that he is who he is and will do what he has done. And when you have that ongoing personal walk with him, grace, the ability to live for him, and peace of God will be multiplied onto you. And so what the writer of Hebrew does, says you need to come boldly to the throne of grace. If it's to be saved, come. Because Jesus is the great high priest passed into the heavens who's very God himself. And if you are saved, you can find grace to help in time of need in your life. Why? Because Jesus is the great high priest who's passed into the heavens who knows what you're going through, who is very God himself. So come boldly. Now, I trust all of us here are believers. And as believers, we need to regularly come boldly. You don't have to be timid. You don't have to hold back. Just come boldly to God. Come boldly to the throne of grace. And you will find that need met in Jesus. Because he is our high priest, who is now in the heavens interceding for us who is very God himself. Very encouraging verse. There's a lot of encouraging verses. This should be up there with all the others that maybe you think of to encourage. This is certainly on the top of the list. Maybe there's six or eight or twelve others on the top of that list that you have but if you've never put this verse on your list for encouragement, put it there. It should be there. Come boldly. Don't hold back. He died for you that you can, could, come boldly. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, 
email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.